So, Coach, it's glad to like bring you on again. So, I know I've done this several times before, but still, can you like give us a little uh, introduction of yourself, a little about your background? Yeah, my name is Bushek Snyder. Of course, I um, my background is pr predominantly as a track and field coach. I coached university level and international level track and field for a very long time with some decent success. And uh, I also have done a lot of uh, consulting work, advisory work uh, with uh, other sports uh, and sports programs and so forth. So uh, I also have some background in the rehab field as well. So Nice. So uh, the first question I want to ask is about like jump training or like you mentioned plyometric. So how exactly do you like program like plyometric? And if you want to like train your athlete to like jump higher, how exactly would you like program that? Well, when I look at programming, that's, that could be a eight, nine hour topic, of course, but I'll try to boil it down to a short answer here. But uh, one of the key things I feel about plyometric training and uh, organization is that it needs to be purposeful, meaning that there are different types of plyometrics that serve different roles in the program. So you need to look at what those uh, goals are, what you have to accomplish and pick the appropriate plyometric. When I look at plyometric programming, basically I normally see three phases. Uh, the first phase is kind of corresponds to a general preparation phase. In the general preparation phase, I think there are three important things that you do. You have to uh, establish the initial volumes in your program. You know, obviously, if you're going to do a lot of jumping or change of direction work, then you must uh, have some volume of jumping in your program. Obviously, volume is not everything, but there has to be a body of work there. So that being said, uh, the best way to establish volume of the volumes or the initial volumes is with in-place jump circuits. So in general prep, in-place jump circuits are uh, use lots of different exercises. Therefore, they're very diverse as far as the stresses on the body. That means that the reduces the risk of injury dramatically because the same body parts are not being stressed in the same way. The other two things that I try to address in general preparation are horizontal skill and vertical skill, the ability to push in horizontal and vertical planes against the ground. So remedial vertical jumps and uh, very short horizontal bounds uh, fall into that category as well. So my general preparation, those three themes, in-place jumps, horizontal, short horizontal work, and remedial vertical work. Then when I move into the second phase, the, the goal there is to improve or increase, I should say, the intensity of the training. You know, we all know that intensity of training has to go up long term in order to get better results from athletes. So therefore, that's what this is all about. So the tool that I typically use in most cases to increase the intensity is to um, employ depth jumps, you know, drop jumps of various types from elevated surfaces. You know, anytime you have an athlete and you put them on an elevated surface and they fall, the gravity has a longer time to act upon them. Therefore, the impact or the shock they experience at landing is higher. So I have certain formulas that I use um, that and um, to subject the athletes to these types of stresses and these types of trainings. Now, um, this type of training is much more intense, so you can't do it nearly so often. So typically I limit, unlike in the previous phase where I may do plyometrics as often as three times a week, here I would only do that type of plyometric once a week. 
Now you also run the risk in between these sessions of losing stimulation. So I'll also continue to do the short bounds and, and the remedial vertical bounds in between the high intensity sessions, just to maintain contact with plyometrics and to maintain the neural stimulation that you need then as well. So basically the second phase of training, which roughly again corresponds to specific prep would be depth jumping along with uh, reviews of the previous general preparation types of work. And then the third um, phase of plyometrics that I use is what goes on in season. And how we handle the in-season is dependent largely upon the sport and the demands of the sport. If I have a, a sport that is uh, very high in intensity, then I might not need high-intensity plyometrics because um, it, the high-intensity plyometrics are being covered in the sport themselves, and I might only have to use lower intensity plyometrics to stimulate between competitions. Track and field is such a sport where the efforts in the sprints and the jumps are so intense that really there's no need for high intensity plyometric training. However, there are other sports where there's a big, very big plyometric component, but the intensity is seldom reach maximum. Those would be most of your jumping sports like basketball, volleyball, and so forth. You know, those types of sports, uh, what I typically do there is I don't do any plyometrics at all because the volume of plyometrics is present in the sport, but I do use very tiny micro doses of high intensity plyometrics just to make sure that the tissues are being loaded periodically. I'll use these maybe every two weeks or so. And that ensures that the tissues remain strong, remain resilient and remain resistant to uh, injury. Um, also, by the way, if a sport is not a jumping sport, but has a big change of direction component to it, then I still consider that a plyometric sport because there's still lots of eccentric forces. So that's basically my three-phase model. The one thing that I might do a little differently is if you're in a sport that has a big endurance component, then instead of the depth jumps, or maybe in addition to the depth jumps, I'll use longer bounds, um, you know, because the longer bounds are good to develop power sustenance. Cool. So, like, uh, when I talk to, like, different coaches, there's also, they're also going to mention that they're probably going to, like, go through all those, like, uh, force velocity curve. And there's an interesting tweet, tweet on your Twitter that you said that this focusing on, like, weakness in the force velocity profile means that you're walling in your low-quality training. So you mentioned that you need to like train the strength of to potentially bring along improvement with in the weakness. So does that mean that you need to train the strongest one? Yes, that's my point exactly. Is that yes, you're always going to be working on those weaknesses, but at no point in your training design should you ever be focusing only on the weaknesses. Okay. So if, for example, you're a person who's outstanding, say, in the weight room, but very poor in plyometrics, it wouldn't make sense for you to stop lifting in order to focus on plyometrics because the weightlifting is driving improvements in the nervous system, which are critical to recruiting the muscle tissue. And you're not capable of doing that with the plyometrics because you're not good at them. You can't reach those levels of intensity. 
So in that way, we kind of use the strengths to pull along the weaknesses in that respect, okay? I didn't mean, of course, that you would work on the weaknesses, but you should never totally devote yourself to the weaknesses in the absence of the strengths, you know? So the main focus should still be on the strength side, but we probably like uh, micro those a little bit weak, the thing we are weak, weaker, I would probably say more than microdosing. You know, I'm not saying that the main focus should be on the strengths, but the strengths should be a continued focus. Cool, cool, cool. The next thing I want to discuss is like uh, the ankle position because in I I, I kind of remember in the uh, NSCA CSS textbook, it mentioned that we should when we do like high speed running, our ankle is probably like dorsiflex that's correct mm -hmm. so uh what are your thoughts on like the ankle position doing the running is it really dorsiflex or no i think it is dorsiflex and i think it should be dorsiflex and i don't think you have to make a big deal out of it in your coaching if your postures are correct normally the ankle kind of dorsiflexes itself and the elastic response against the ground tends to put it in dorsiflexion in response in preparation for the next drive but yes i'm still teaching dorsiflexion and that's because it puts the achilles unit on stretch and allows the achilles unit to contribute now the position on dorsiflexion was pretty much unargued for years for a long time and it was kind of just taken as something that we understand and something that we do. However, there have been a couple of critics of the dorsiflexion theory, you know, um, in the last, uh, say, 10, I'd say maybe 10 years or so. And I'd like to share with you my thoughts on those criticisms of dorsiflexion. If you examine sprinters, really good ones, often you will see just before the foot touches the ground, you'll see just a little bit of plantar flexion of the ankle. You'll see the ankle extend just a little, and they don't hold dorsiflexion all the way up until the very end. So some people have looked at that and said, well, since these high-level sprinters are doing this, this is the model that we should be following. I don't necessarily agree, and let me explain to you why I feel that, okay? Um, the body, of course, is subject to different types of reflexes, and one of those reflexes is a grounding reflex. You know, if you were just standing there and I came up and I pushed you in the back, you would take a step forward in order to catch yourself to preserve yourself from falling, you see. When we see plantar flexion uh, in sprinting, most of the time it's associated with very poor posture. And because these postures are poor, the foot, if maintained dorsiflexion, would strike too far behind the center of mass. So therefore, athletes in compensation for the poor posture will dorsiflex, I'm sorry, will plantar flex the ankle, point the toe, in order for the foot to contact earlier and contact under the center of mass. So we've all seen sprinters who have very poor mechanics and anterior pelvic tilt. Those sprinters always show very high degrees of plantar flexion. They do not dorsiflex well at all. My point is this. Yes, we're used to the very poor sprinter showing high degrees of dorsiflexion. But suppose an elite level sprinter has good posture, but it's not perfect. Let's assume that that sprinter's posture is very good, but it's still showing very tiny degrees of anterior pelvic tilt. If we would then show or uh, see tiny, small degrees of anterior pelvic tilt, 
then if that's the natural reaction, then we should expect tiny degrees of plantar flexion, like we're seeing with these elite level sprinters. You know, we're assuming that just because someone's elite, that everything that they're doing is perfect, and that isn't the case. Typically, at really high intensities and high arousal levels, technical models tend to break down just a little bit. You know, like most of the world records are not set with A plus, you know, top grade mechanics. They're typically uh, high levels of arousal combined with mechanics that are maybe A minus grade, you know, so still good mechanics, but not perfect. So that's my thoughts on why we do see this. I, I So that's why I'm holding firm to my model of dorsiflexion. And if I see athletes that do plantar flex just a little bit, then I just continue to try to improve their postures those last two or three degrees or so. Well, so... Uh, when it comes like uh, ankle dorsiflexion, there's probably we we are using the the elasticity of the uh, Achilles tendon, right? That is correct. So, uh, besides like the Achilles tendon, for let's let's say if I want to like train sprinter, if I want to like really develop their elasticity, how should we be? How should I be doing this? Well, that's where your plyometric program comes in. And I think that one of the keys and one of the things that people miss in the plyometric program, besides the organization that we discussed early, is that they just subject people to indiscriminate amounts of plyometrics or indiscriminate intensities of plyometrics uh, too soon or too often. Um, I always use this example, forgive this kind of, but if you're in the, if you're outside on a, on a wet day, and you're trying to build a fire, you might find wood and you're trying to build a fire. Well, suddenly you get the fire going. And if you blow too hard on the fire, it's gonna go out. But if you blow on it just right, just very subtly, then you can build the fire up. Well, that's the point exactly I'm trying to make here is that uh, elasticity is like that. It's, 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 a, it's a flame that can be easily extinguished. It's uh, something that you can overtrain. And if you overtrain, and uh, even subtly, then you you're, you're killing elasticity and things might actually get worse. So it's all about the appropriate um, insertion and use of intensities and volumes in the plyometric program. So uh, for volume wise, there's like three phases of what the plyometric you mentioned. At the first, I know we discussed like the in season for like how should we program the in-season in our like first conversation. But for those like the first two phases of plyometric, how would you like pro for volume wise? Well, I never worry about the volumes per se. Uh, first of all, plyometric is something where we should be more concerned with the intensities than the volumes. The only thing that I worry about as far as volume is concerned is a body of work. You know, if I, if I am going to do, high intensity dev jumps later in, you know, in preparation for the competition season, then I have to have a certain volume of jumping in order to prepare for that. So I'm only concerned with volumes as far as the body of work is concerned. So I'm not achieving volumes just for the sake of achieving volumes. I don't consider it a success if I go from a certain amount of plyometrics to a larger amount of plyometrics. I typically feel more in, my philosophy is more that 
we have to be able to accomplish this much. And once we've capable of accomplishing this body of work, this volume of plyometrics, then we move forward with the intensity. So, so, and again, that's why I use the in-place jumps as the volume building tool, because they're the most diverse forms of plyometrics. So therefore you're subjecting yourself to less injury risk. I hope I answered your question clearly. Yeah, of course, of course. So that's like the question, that's the question for uh, jumping performance. The next I want to discuss is like it's about like sprinting. So when it comes to like 100 meter sprint sprinting or like 60 meter sprint, is there because it's like so short? It's probably for like 60 meters probably end before seven seconds, and for like the 100 100 meter sprinter, it's probably it's gonna end before like 11. So is there a race model or like race plan plan for like the six meter sprint and 100 meter sprint? Well, I can tell you this, you can make a lot of mistakes in a 60 and run a good time because the race is so short and you don't really get a chance to truly um, uh, enjoy the benefits of the momentum that you would have enjoyed earlier in the race. The hundred meters is a much less forgiving race, but generally speaking, as we know, all sprint races begin with a drive phase you know, a period of uh, extended pushing, more complete, longer ground contact times, more complete pushes, triple extension, body lean, progressive body leans, and so forth. So when I am teaching um, the, the sprint models, what I typically do is I use a kind of a double drive phase kind of philosophy. What I'll do is in most cases, I'll have athletes, and, I'm, and I'm, by the way, I'm not adamant about it. I kind of show some flexibility here. What I typically do is I have the athletes hold their breath for the first uh, six steps of the race. Then they'll exhale and inhale. After exhaling and inhale, then they'll hold their breath again for another six steps or possibly, if that's not comfortable, maybe four steps. And it normally takes two steps for them to inhale and exhale. So typically most of the people I work with, um, and there's, that's not a lot of them, but the people I work with are typically using what I call a, a 626 or a 624 kind of model. And that's how we kind of handle the drive phase. When I talk about these breathing rhythms, a lot of people are puzzled and they're, they're terrified because, oh, I haven't addressed that with my sprinter. But frankly, if you go and you pay attention, you probably notice that your sprinter is holding breath for the first few steps. Anyway, you just might want to kind of adjust it or polish it up or whatever the case uh, case may be. And then after they get out of the drive phrase, it's, it's just shallow diaphragmal type of breathing from that point on. Um, the key models, I guess we would say, besides the breathing is the rate at which frequency develops, at least that perception to the athlete, and the rate through which the body angles change. Uh, if you are a sprinter and you tend to overextend the drive phase, then it's very difficult to develop the vertical forces that you need later in the race. Uh, and most of the time, overpushing or overdriving is associated with a frequency that does not come soon enough. On the other hand, you have athletes who get too quick with their stride frequency too early. And as a result, they pay a price in momentum development. So when they reach top velocity, they don't have the momentum values to carry them through the end of the race effectively. So you're trying to find a happy medium in between those two extremes. You know, if you go to any race, you'll find sprinters who over push and you'll see print sprinters who don't push enough and it's finding the happy middle ground. 
So is there like uh, how to like, let's say, what if my athletes over push? How should I be correcting them? Well, in most cases, the cue to correct over pushing is to begin to develop the frequency sooner, a more aggressive um, um, strategy as far as increasing stride cadence, stride frequency over time. And the reverse, of course, would be true for for um, for for under pushing, so to speak. And you can you can see over pushing because what you the symptoms are the the pelvis tends to remain in anterior tilt, the shin angles at contact tend to remain acute, and as a result of that, we never really generate the good postures or the vertical forces that you need in order to be successful in the latter phases of the sprint. Cool. So, uh, you you also mentioned that at the first few steps it's going to be looking like triple extension so but there's like some of there's like debates about like should triple extension even be in the uh sprint sprinting mechanic what are your thoughts on this well i don't think it's arguable that you see triple extension in those first few steps i mean just about every elite sprinter i'm not saying that we should always copy people but it's hard to find an elite sprinter that doesn't show triple extension in those early steps. Now, as we move closer to max velocity, we still see good extension in the hip, but we typically see less extension in the knee and the ankle. You know, So if you're arguing against triple extension at max velocity, I certainly understand that argument, but it's very difficult, I think, to make that argument. Also, if you understand the physics, you're trying to develop momentum. Momentum is equal to force, you know, the, is, is Momentum is related to the impulse production, which is force times time. So it makes sense that you want longer contact times, which would imply more involvement of all three joints. So, yeah, I, I don't think there's any solid argument at all against triple extension with one possible exception, which is a misunderstanding. Uh, sometimes we see athletes who, and, and this, is, this is more of a coaching mistake than an athlete mistake, but the coach will tell them to feel complete extension. By the time you extend completely and you sense it to the brain, but from the time that you reach complete extension to the time that the brain senses this, there's typically about 0.15 of a second. And this means that if you're waiting that 0.15 of a second, you're going to be too late in recovering the leg in anticipation of the next stride. So my point is, is that all good athletes show triple extension but because of this slight time delay, they don't feel triple extension. So it's important to differentiate between the two, in my opinion. Great. Love that. Love that. So since we're talking about like sprinting, uh, kind of want to like dive into like when we are sprinting, how does the spine and the hip moves? Okay. Well, that's very important because basically sprinting, we normally think of it as something that the legs do, but I don't think of it that way at all. I think of sprinting as something that originates more in the spine and in the pelvis, you know. So I look at the lower leg more as a force transmitter than a force production piece. But in any case, you know, if you look at people when they're walking or running or sprinting for that matter, you see very small movements of the uh, lumbar spine, a little wiggle, so to speak, of the lumbar spine. And when that wiggle takes place, it puts stretches on certain muscles as it vibrates back and forth. And that's what gets the pelvis moving. So what we see is small 
movements on, of the spine that are being amplified by bigger movements, bigger oscillations of the pelvis. You know, if you're sprinting and you take a stride with your right foot, your right side of your pelvis is going to be ahead of the left. And then, of course, when you step with the left foot, the left side's ahead of the right. So your hips are always turning in the transverse plane as you sprint. And also, when you pick up the right knee, the right side is higher. When you pick up the left knee, the left side is higher. So you also have some up and down movement in the frontal plane. So what we see in sprinting is the pelvis wobbling, so to speak, repeating an oscillating pattern. So if the pelvis is oscillating, when it turns to one side, certain muscles are pulled and stretched. And those muscles, that the elastic responses through those muscles are what assist in bringing the thigh, the femur, forward or bringing the thigh or femur backward. So we always have the pelvis initiating these elastic responses, which feed energy outward. So you should think of sprinting in terms of small movements of the spine, amplified elastically by movements, bigger movements of the pelvis, and the movements of the legs effectively operate uh, in response to the pelvis as well. You know, everyone at some point in time has seen like a cowboy use a whip, you know, to, to whip a cow or a horse or whatever on a TV show. Or maybe you're in the dressing room and you roll up a towel and you snap a towel. If you think about that, you know, rolling up a towel and snapping it, the, the, the wrist moves through a very small range of motion, but the tail end of the whip or the towel moves through a big range of motion. And that's kind of how it works. The small movements of the pelvis produce the whip-like type of effect of the, the leg. And that's how we run effectively. This is why pelvic posture is so important in sprinting is because if the pelvis is not aligned in a neutral position, then it loses its ability to oscillate. And now you, the pelvis isn't contributing anything at all elastically. And then your efficiency levels have dropped off dramatically. So does that, is it the same with like, there's a paper about like a uh, spinal engine theory? That is correct. That's, that's exactly uh, the first person I think, or at least that I'm aware of, that kind of put this out there was uh, Grakovetsky. And that was exactly what he did. He, he called it the spinal engine theory, meaning that the, the spine is where it all began. What he did in his research was he looked at <clears throat> lower order animals. He looked at like fish and he saw how fish use their spine. You know how fish wiggles its tail when it swims. And he saw that the spine was involved with the fish when it swam. Then he looked at like a, a lizard crawling a wall and he saw how the lizard's uh, spine kind of wiggled when he went up the wall. So he, his, his uh, process, his thought process was if these animals are using the spine to move, then why do we as humans think that our spine is not involved in walking, running and so forth? He suspected that it would be. So he went ahead and he did the EMG studies. And of course, that's when he found that the lumbar spine was indeed involved in sprinting. And there were, you know, matching, uh, balancing um, movements in the thoracic spine and so forth. Yeah. So what if you, let's say, you don't see those like uh, movement, movement in the hip? It's like, what if the athlete had, has like very rigid and tight hips? Do you do any like corrective exercise on this? Well, I don't call them correctives. I just call them a normal part of training. You know, um, basically, I think every good coach 
um, has some type of mobility work that they subject the athletes to on a regular basis to produce looseness in the hips and the ability of the hips to move freely. But keep in mind that just doing that training doesn't ensure that the pelvis is going to oscillate. Uh, it's all about the pelvis being positioned well as also. If the pelvis is tilted anteriorly, um, you might have all the flexibility and mobility in the world in the pelvic region, but the pelvis won't oscillate because it's out of alignment. So it's important to understand the difference between alignment and technique and the ability of the pelvis to move from a pathological standpoint. Great. So I'm going to jump into the next question is about like, uh, since like last time we discussed about like uh, at the last phase of like a uh, 100 meter sprint, you have like training speed endurance for like, for to like um for coordination wise because some of some of the athletes they're probably gonna decrease their speed like uh two 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 meter per second and some some of the athlete probably gonna decrease five five meter per second so besides like training speed endurance is there any other like exercise you would do to train like coordination well, um, I think speed endurance is the single most important one, and it's by far the most specific one. So outside of the general coordination things you do in your warm-up, I don't necessarily think that that's the case. I think that most of the gains that come in that area are related to speed endurance training, but they're also related to your basic strength and power training. Keep in mind, in the let's look at a 100-meter race model. If you take an athlete, and you make that athlete stronger and more powerful, then the length of their acceleration phase increases. All right, then everybody, regardless of their ability level, is capable of about three seconds of maximal velocity. So, so for example, if you have an athlete who can accelerate at, to 40 meters, and typically they're gonna maintain maximal velocity up to 70 meters, they're going to decelerate over the last 30 meters. And of course, we train speed endurance to minimize that deceleration. But if we take that athlete and we make them stronger and more powerful, then now maybe we have an athlete who can accelerate for 50 meters. If they can accelerate for 50 meters, that means they enter max velocity later. It means they leave max velocity later. So now suddenly, instead of having to hold it together for 30 meters at the end, now you only have to hold it together for 20 meters at the end. So a big part of managing that is not just the speed endurance work, it's the strength explosive power work you do that lengthens the acceleration phase. That's what sprint coaching is all about. Keep in mind, 100 meters is a distribution race. What we're trying to do is accelerate as long as we possibly can, then try to push the entrance into max velocity further down the track. Then that would push the exit from max velocity further down the track. And now we're finding that with the very most elite sprinters that they're actually only decelerating maybe five to 10 meters at the end of the race because they're accelerating out to as far as close to 60 meters now because they're so strong and, and powerful. It's also important to note at this point in time that um, you can't accelerate out to 60 meters if you're not powerful and strong. You know, sometimes coaches will tell a very young athlete, developmental. Oh, just keep pushing for 60 meters. Well, an athlete like that 
you're putting them in bad positions because they can't accelerate for that long. It's important that we understand that we lengthen the drive phase. We lengthen the acceleration phase through training, not through technique. So uh, for, for in order to like lengthen that drive phase, how strong should we be like, how strong should the athlete be? Probably, let's say if they are like doing a back squat, how strong would they, or how heavy would they be squatting? And like, like the first time we mentioned, you mentioned that the first 10 meter would probably how much you squat. And after that is like power clean or power snatch. So how strong are they like power clean and power snatch? Yeah, well, I think that you have to be able to do at least one and a half times your body weight and possibly more. Um, as far as the, the squat, I don't consider it a significant aid there. Other, once we get out of the first 10 meters or so, I kind of think that most of the contributions of the squat per se, have, as far as specificity are basically done, the squat does have something to do with maintaining biomechanical efficiency and stability in the core and so forth. But that being said, I, I really look for a, normally about one and a half times body weight as a very minimum standard for uh, sprinters. And I have noticed that it just seems that anytime that you see improvements in Olympic lifting performance, you typically see improvements in performance. The same can't be said with squats. You know, even though squats are an important part of what you do, uh, once you get to the certain to a point with a back squat where you're strong, uh, continuing to improve it doesn't seem to help in fact sometimes it seems to make things worse typically when i get an athlete who can and again keep in mind this is a legitimate sub parallel deep squat uh, about 2.1 2.2 times their body weight to me they're strong enough and going beyond that point typically doesn't help however with the olympic lifts increasing those seems to help and transfer much better so I look at the Olympic lifts and I also look at the lower end plyometrics, the longer contact types of time plyometrics as those that help to improve that 10 meter to, to max velocity zone of sprinting. So uh, for the low end or like longer ground contact time plyometrics, would you program like program something like high hurdle jump? Possibly, yes. But also um, keep in mind that anytime that you're doing plyometrics that are horizontal, then those are going to have longer contact times as well. So I guess we might say uh, here and, and be fairly certain to be, that we're, we're correct that the horizontal um, program for plyometrics probably helps in this part of the sprint more than the vertical program does. Nice. So... Uh... So that, is that the reason why if there's like sprint coaches doing like strength or if like sprint coaches, they're also uh, doing their strength coaches, they're good at like, they're good at what they do. And most of the strength coaches wouldn't be as good as a sprint coach. Um, I don't like to uh, lump people into categories, but that's possible. Yes. So, uh, for like energy system, next thing I want to discuss is like for energy system for like sprinters, because it's like uh, it's under ten seconds for one hundred meter sprinters for, so like for speed endurance or like tempo day, how would you program it? 
Well, I don't really, I'll be very frank with you. I don't, when I'm training sprinters, uh, short sprinters, I don't really worry about uh, energy systems at all, to be honest with you, uh, because uh, well, my, my goal and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to set up the training model in order to mimic the race. So I'm always looking at race demands. You know, we have to be able to achieve this velocity. We have to hold this velocity for this amount of time. We have to run two rounds. So therefore we have to be able to come back and do a second round that's just as good or better than the first round and so forth. So I'm always looking at those types of demands and that's where, how I set up the training more so than like energy systems. You know? So that's why I, you know, I, I understand, yes, if I do a good speed endurance workout, Athletes are going to be tired. I've covered some speed endurance. I've, I've, I've uh, developed some fitness in that regard, but I'm really not measuring the effects on the energy systems as much as the ability to maintain velocity through certain parts of the race. You know, when I write a special endurance workout, uh, typically I'm not so concerned about the energy system. What I'm concerned about is, is the first run fast and how much fall off do I get on the second run and the third run? because that's going to tell me something about my ability to run rounds, my ability to come back and run a second race later. You see, so, so those are the things that I typically worry about more so than the energy systems. And I just kind of let the energy systems take care of themselves. Now, when you look at 400 meter training, that's different. You know, this is when you genuinely do have to be concerned with energy system fitness, in addition to all the things we've already mentioned. And the most important one, of course, is the ability to buffer, the ability to handle the acidity that comes on in the longer sprints. So in my opinion, you have two things to concern yourself with. Uh, if you're going to run long sprints, you have to be able to handle large amounts of acidity without question. And the other thing you have to do is you have to be able to handle the acidity, the rate at which it comes on, okay? Like you might do a lot of training for 400 meters, do lots of workouts, lots of volume and whatever. You might be able to handle a lot of acidity. But if you go into a race and you go out faster than you normally go out in training, what kills you is not that you can't handle a lot of acidity. What kills you is that the acidity came earlier than you would normally expect. You see, so that's why I think that it's very important uh, in 400 meter training. Yes, you have to have your longer efforts. I, I get that. But you also have to have shorter efforts that are faster than race pace so that you are able to get the acidity into the system earlier so that that's the case. You know, if you if you did a workout, let's say I'm just going to throw some numbers out there. Maybe it's women and maybe you're doing a workout like eight by 200 or something like that. Uh, you know, maybe the runs are like at 28 seconds. All right. You're running 200s. At the end of that workout, there's a lot of acidity there. You can handle a lot of acidity, but 28 times two is 56 second pace. So if this young lady in a race goes out and tries to run 51 second or 52 seconds, then yeah, she can handle a lot of acidity, but it's going to come on her sooner. And that's why she's not going to be successful there. So that's why these shorter efforts at faster than race pace are a critical part of the training. Nice. I want to go back to like the spinal engine theory. And you mentioned that squat and uh, that Olympic lifting you're going to do on your sprinters. So for squatting like two. 2.1 or 2.2 body weight 
is there is there gonna like frigid their spine region and does that gonna is that gonna like affect how the lumbar spine gonna move it could very well be that squatting does produce some tightness in the spine it's not permanent you know it's it, you know it's a short term effect and that's why you have to be careful about how you do that type of work you know most of the things we do in training have a tremendous benefit but also have some type of negative associated with it and that's why our scheduling is so critical so is heavy deep squatting a part of my program yes it is no without any doubt but it's also something that i stay away from at certain times of the year and during the times of the year when I want to do it and I'm focusing on it, it's not so much about how often, but about how well it's done. You know, it's, it's seldom that I will use heavy deep squats uh, in a workout with an athlete more than once a week, even at the time of the year when that's one of the most important things to me. So is that a reason why in our first conversation, you mentioned that uh, during the off season, you're going to like strength, strengthen them but mostly in the uh, in during the in season you're probably going to do just like olympic weightlifting and plyo yes that's correct yeah the squat work you do does have some negatives like i said it does produce some tightness elasticity losses and some discoordination short term probably because of the proprioception fatigue but anyway to make a long story short that's why I, you know, that's typically in season, I'm very careful or even maybe totally discontinue that type of work. So is there like, uh, you mentioned that uh, for deep squat, we're probably going to squat them like 2.1 or 2.2 body weight. Are you going to do like a higher load and like a smaller range of motion for like, let's say the half squat or like quarter squat? No, I prefer not to do half squats and quarter squats in large uh, amounts. There might be certain phases where I might do a little bit of them, but I don't like to do them in large amounts. I feel very strongly that when you start loading with small ranges of motion and you do it too often, you start to see changes in the strength ratios between the quads and the hamstrings. So I'm always thinking more in terms of full ranges of motion as something that improves movement quality smaller ranges of motion, that type of work might be necessary in small doses at, at certain times, but I don't consider, um, but I think that it's risky to do in high dosages. You know, that's when you start to see imbalances creep into your program and the mechanics uh, don't look as good. Cool. So uh, I'm going to ask a stupid question. So uh, like you mentioned, there's spinal engine theory. So why are we always like strengthen the like the quads, the hip, instead of like do something to let our probably core or spine, the ridge, this muscle around the spine stronger? Well, I'm not so sure that the muscle, the exercises that uh, exercise the hamstrings and the quads, or whatever, don't affect the core, to be honest with you, you know. Uh, you know, we think of core exercises as doing some crunches and sit-ups or, you know, those types of things, but those are not high-demand exercises. You know, if you're doing a clean or a squat and you're forced to contract the core and keep the core in alignment through the, through the movement of the exercise under heavy weight, that's a much more demanding activity on the core than the, uh, the, the things that you would typically consider core training. If you look at the actual sprinting that you do, 
that's very demanding on the core as well. So I think the core training is in there, to be honest with you. Uh, that's why I feel very strongly about the deeper squatting as opposed to the shallower squatting, because I think in the deeper squatting, the core becomes very engaged, whereas that's not the case in the shallower squatting. So why, so is, is that the same reason why do you squat besides like hip thrust? Exactly. Yeah, I want to use the entire chain, you know, all of the joints. I want, I want the core stabilizing. I want the hips, the knees, ankles, all to be involved in the movement. Cool, cool. That's probably all the question I have for today. So for those like coaches are interested in what we're talking about today, where can they reach out to you? The best way to reach out to me is through my website, sacspeed.com, uh, S-A-C-S-P-E-E-D.com. And you can also email me directly uh, through that website. Great. Great.